Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. I say that with much confidence and love for myself today. If you like my theme music there, that's a band called Les Blanks. Check them out at lesblanks.com, or also uh, they uh, some of them are in a band called Holy Folk, uh, which is real good, critically uh, acclaimed, by the way. So check out those bands. If you haven't listened to my show before, it is just what the title implies there. It's me having a conversation with a interesting person, a far more interesting person than me. Uh, and today I speak with um, uh, Harold Budd, who is uh, a composer. We'll just call him, He's just say he's a composer because there's he has a lot of titles thrown on him and we uh, we talk about the many titles he has as a musician. He's worked with, among being a unique individual of uh, himself, he's also worked with uh, Andrew Partridge from XDC, the Cocktoo Twins, and a little fella named Brian Eno, who's, I'd say, maybe one of the top innovators in, in music. Uh, and as I make this intro, I'm praying uh, to you that my my upstairs neighbors don't start fighting again because they're fighting. <laughs> they're having one of those like, oh my God, someone's going to die arguments. And uh, part of me, I was partly thinking like, oh, I should get up and get up there and uh, and tell them to cool out. But uh, they always say, don't get involved in domestic excuses, or, uh, d- uh, domestic abuse or domestic squabbles. And so I'll use that excuse to, uh, to be a coward. I'll use <laughs> A, a man who's a genius, a renowned musical composing genius. He's fascinating. There is a brief moment where there's a silence because he gets up to uh, look at this bottle of wine that we, we start talking about drinking and stuff. So what it seemed, it was very charming in the moment. I hope that ch- charm translates into the audio ear hole thing. But it's very brief anyway, so it doesn't matter. Harold's a great man. Very interesting conversation. Please enjoy But the one thing that people put so many labels onto your what it is you do because it's like avant-garde and minimalist and uh, does that bother you at all or does that noise the hell out of me? <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, the worst the worst of them all was twenty five years ago when it was New Age, and that really frosted me. I just detested that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that has a very ugly connotation. New Age, very, very reprehensible. And so, I guess I mean I knew a little bit of, the, but it was some of it was was kind of god awful of the New Age stuff. <laughs> I remember just hearing a lot of sort of um, really bad music. Yeah, really bad music. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Why do they keep just lumping things in like that? Is that just because of... Convenience. Not laziness? Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Do you you despise the labels of music in general, or does that... Or, like, would you label your... What you do exactly? No, I wouldn't. It's... No, I don't don't try. It's just more of um, an exploration, would you... No, no, I have I have no interest in labeling at all. <laughs> I leave that for other people. But some of the best things have happened in society by labeling. That I've meant that sarcastically. That yeah, 
Anyway, that's not my concern. <laughs> and Edgar, I've heard that you started off as a drummer in, in bebop, and there's that... Yes, that's true. I can't remember who they said you, you drummed with. Albert Eiler. Oh, right. And you were doing a lot of bebop. And is I that... was doing an awful lot of bebop on the, in the uh, clubs in South Central L.A., but that's back when I was 17, 18 years old. That, was that like, uh, could you give me a, a year? Is that like when like Mingus and Chet Baker and all those guys were? Yes. So you must have, uh, that must have been. I, I, uh, hold on. <laughs> I wasn't terribly good at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I never, and I, 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 I knew that um, um, even though I loved bebop and I, you know, worshipped every um, note that Lenny Tristano played and stuff like that, and still do. I um, knew that my life was not happening there because I didn't have the skills. I just didn't, and I, I didn't have, I didn't have that kind of interest and drive to keep keep that alive. I felt, I felt it was just too limiting, in a in 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 a way. Uh, and I'm kind of glad about that because uh, it meant that at a young age, I had a um, I had a a more sound vision about what was happening in the world. That I was not willing to limit myself to something that was. Um, not, not terribly open to new ideas or stuff, art art stuff. You know, it was it was it was. Um, if I if I had been a painter, it would be like I'm looking at Jackson Pollock every day, and that's not enough. It's just not enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, I have a dog that makes a guest appearance in a lot of my shows, so okay, that's, that's, that's cool. So that's what happens when you're a little bit more bare bones. Uh, and did you had you had already been working with a piano, or was that a transition from drums? To- I never, never uh, learned. Um, I, I never took a piano lesson in my in my life. You you have to understand that uh, when I. How, how can I put it? I started college late, like age 21, because I knew if I didn't do something, I would um, uh, live in shit forever. Because I didn't have any skills. And I had, um, well, what can I say? Anyway, I I enrolled in a, few classes at LACC on North uh, Vermont back in the mid-50s. And I thought to myself, well, I'll be a filmmaker or painter or something in the arts. But I didn't know what, really. And since I was a musician, and I'm putting that word in quotes, um, I thought I'd take some classes in uh, harmony and counterpoint. Well, it turned out that I took to that like water. 
and I, I gave up any notion of being a filmmaker or a painter because I was, I, I just loved the discovery of a world that I knew nothing about, especially, especially um, 16th century counterpoint, and which, which I, I mean, that was an eye-opener. I never dreamed there was a life like that at any time, ever. And um, I knew a lot about various painters. I, I knew a lot about 20th century art, because that was always a kind of a hip thing among me and my friends. We would get postcards of something, mostly Paul Clay or that sort of thing, you know. And um, so, um, so that 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 changed me. Uh, and finally, when I got to uh, big college, after after four years of, of living before then. Um, I was at, I was in a generation of American composers who uh, had, were in the process of breaking away from the European tradition, which was learning how to play a piano or learning how to play anything, and but it was mostly conceptual. Right, my my uh, big turnaround was uh, discovering, along with everybody else, uh, John Cage and Morton Feldman and Earl Brown, and that school of American composers, which uh, uh, changed everything for everybody who, who were kind of hip, shall we say, or thought they were. This <laughs> 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 is probably more, yeah, probably more thought. <laughs> yeah, you told some story of uh, John Cage, uh, a teacher getting fired at your university because... That's correct. Absolutely. Did I tell you that? No, you, I've read it in some... Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It, it, it is quite true. It is absolutely quite true. His, his name was Gerald Strang, and I went to study at the college where he was a, the head of the department because I had, at one time, had a 12-inch record, and it was um, something, the California Percussion School... <clears throat> And it was uh, pieces by Harry Parch, um, Lou Harrison, John Cage, Colin McPhee, and Gerald Strang. And I thought to myself, well, if this is, this is great. He teaches here in Southern California. Bitch, and I'm going to go there. <laughs> and so, so I did. And he brought, in, he brought in a lot of different artists. But when he brought in John Cage, there was such a ruckus among the conservative faculty members, that he, he lost his job. That's such a crazy... Yes, it was absolutely crazy. Yes, I know that. But it was my, my first exposure to really dumb-ass teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always suspected they were there, but by God, <laughs> they were. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's interesting, because a lot of the artists I've talked to, uh, they all sort of talk poorly about their formal education like uh, Lori Lipton was like I don't know if you're aware of her art but it's but she's like I didn't learn anything in school she's like I just was in school to bide my no, time no that's that's quite true 
Yeah, I, I learned what I really needed to learn from somebody who uh, was smarter than I was, like uh, years earlier, 16th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't have picked that up myself. But so what? I never used it anyway. It had it had it was just formative. That's all, you know. It's it's. I didn't I didn't learn a thing about art or music. Yet. I was never I was never taught anything that I, that I really kept or, or needed ever. Yeah, that's it's. Do you just think that's just sort of it's an innate thing within an individual, and then I don't to, know about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a little bit uh, metaphysical for me. I don't know. <laughs> but or, or I guess maybe the drive and the desire to sort of explore. Oh, always that. Yeah. Oh, I'm shit. I'm still at it. Oh God, yes. Yeah, because you said another thing that you said you rarely listen to music, but you'd prefer to go look at art. I don't know if that's still absolutely true. And is that where you draw most of your inspiration from? No. I don't know where inspiration comes from. Um, I have a house in Joshua Tree that's uh, built by an architect named uh, Josh uh, Schweitzer. And it's a rather famous house in, in Joshua Tree. It's uh, a desert house, which I've lived in for nine years. And I'm always asked, well, you must be, um, I mean, the desert must be really hugely important to you. Like, you know, because it's the desert. It's the, Absolutely not. <laughs> in fact, if I rather dislike it. But, but the house that I'm in and the vibes from that guy that built it are I mean that boy man that generated a lot of different albums and I just sat there on windy nights you know thinking of thinking of stuff (laughs) you know titles Um, and I, I got serious about writing poetry and Yeah, that's interesting because you said the thing about it. Because you grew up in the desert, didn't you? Grow up in the partly. Yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of people always assume that, like, if you grow up and they're like, "Oh, did that have an influence on your?" No, it didn't. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Too too much horseshit. (laughs) But then that's an interesting thing you were saying. Like you would think of titles because a lot of times, and I'm I. Not nearly as knowledgeable as you, but you look at a title of a song, and you always wonder. And it's if it's an instrumental, sort of how did they think of the title, or were they going after a feeling? Oh, going when, after when, a feeling. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, sure, an an image of of some kind. Yes, um, I, yes, that that's what I do. I carry titles with me into the studio, and it's it's all prearranged. When a piece comes up. Says, well, where where are we in the titles? Oh, right here. Okay, that's the name of this piece. That's it. That's it. And do, that's how you start the the writing of it as well by just the title. Yeah. Yeah. Very often. 
mean, nothing is 100% ever. But that's, that's, that's pretty accurate, yeah. Yeah, and and most of it happens in the studio. Because I was also, you were saying how uh, Brian Eno sort of helped you learn how to, that the studio is an instrument, which a lot of, I don't think prior to that, a lot of people thought of it that way, did they? You... I don't really know, um, but I, I give him full credit for turning my life around uh, in, in that, in, as an artist. I mean, uh, look at the amount of instruments I have. <laughs> <laughs> Do you keep a piano nearby, or it's not at all? I think the damn thing. I had. A, I I did when when my wife and my uh, very very young son um, we we bought a house a number of years ago in um, in Los Feliz, and I had a piano there, and it was a nice piano. It was a really good one. But all it did was collect dust, and I and I never played it, and I just I don't know. I, I, anyway, at some point, I had I got rid of it, and the movers came by, and out it went, and I put uh, a Navajo rug down there, which I still have in my bedroom. And um, every morning when I'd get up to have my cup of tea, I would see that empty space not there with the Navajo rug down in its place, and I would think to myself, Jesus, did I make a smart move. <laughs> I'm so glad to have gotten rid of that damn thing. So I, I never I, I never played it. I mean, I, I don't I don't have any chops at all. Absolutely none at all. I play what I what I do because that's that's what I do. But um, it doesn't come from. Uh, I don't practice. Um, I couldn't. Any, I can't play anything. So why <laughs> practice what, Harold? I mean, come on. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Because it's like you hear some musicians. It's that they, you know. It's like I get up. I play three hours a day. No, no, nothing like that. No, absolutely nothing. Cannot stand the idea of doing that. It seems like such a tedious waste of time. You're going to make me feel a lot better for when I don't write. The days I don't write, I'm just going to not never write again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to steer you in the wrong direction. Believe me, this is just my own trip. I'm afraid. Uh, and and that was when we were talking about uh, John Cage and how that. But then there was another moment you were talking about how you sort of I don't want to say would it, would it be accurate to, that you rebelled against his sound because some yes. people and I, I found that really interesting because you do listen to that to John Cage and it is very gravely different. And uh, listen, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, I think it was back in about 1970, perhaps. It just occurred to me that uh, the avant-garde world of music, avant-garde music, was so self-congratulatory and so much about itself and so fucking dull <laughs> that I just, I'm not, I'm not participating in this crap anymore, ever. And I my word. And I had a, a still my closest friend is a composer, a 
Daniel Lentz, who had exactly the same idea as I did at this exactly the same time. And we became very close friends, as you can imagine, once we finally hooked up together. Um, and he's still at it, too. He's, you know, like, um, we, we sneer. We sneer. <laughs> Such horrible snob. We, we sneer at the avant-garde composers. And such brats. I mean, God, I'm embarrassed to admit. I am a snob. I'm a brat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. But I mean, it, it, it's, it, to me, it did seem like there needed to be a reaction to it because it was... Oh, there certainly was a, a, with me. I mean, I really reacted. I mean, I went in the opposite And you'd been accused of somewhat um, killing that sort of, if that's for lack of a better word, that sort of movement of music prior to to John Cage type stuff. Is that correct? I have been, yes, but um, I I can't take credit. (laughs) (laughs) We We can give you credit, though. Others can give you that credit. It was you know was your childhood at all like was that music like was there no, mu- nothing no, nothing no what? art no 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 nothing nothing I I didn't um, I don't know how I discovered art and music but when I did it, it was I was the only one in the family who uh, had the vaguest inclination that I was drifting in that direction because it had nothing to do with my family at all I mean. Totally nothing. Was it like more of a working class type family, or um, initially it was upper middle class because my father was a—he um, was a quite successful businessman, and he had a lot of money. And when he died, um, we didn't have any money. So suddenly we became like overnight extremely poor people, which was uh, hard to deal with as a 17-year-old kid. But anyway, somewhere along the line, I, I had heard something or stumbled across something that um, got me interested in jazz. And of course it was jazz that I heard, but I can't remember in how or why that happened. Uh, was it anyone else? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't... I, uh, but I, I don't know how it happened. I, I don't know. I, I had a really hip friend who... Uh, but I, I just... I s- discovered that friend because I had already become a, an aficionado of some kind of art life outside of my own family background. But I, I can't recall to save my life how how on earth I was introduced to it. I don't know. It's, but you, but jazz sort of kicked you off into more of oh, a oh, exp- God, yes, a- absolutely. In fact, it used to be uh, loud loud jazz. You know, like uh, old. I can't think of the names, but one day 
one, I'll never forget it as long as I live. It's like, it's like the um, apocryphal tale of uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus when suddenly he was struck by lightning. And, you know, his, he, he became St. Paul instead of his former self. You know what I mean? That, Absolutely. Okay, so I think I was 16 years old. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, uh, I was in summer school at L.A. High. And, uh, well, I was enrolled in summer school at L.A. High. And so were my other friends. But, man, the minute that bell rang uh, for beginning of class, we were in a car on our way to Santa Monica Beach. And there, was, there used to be a DJ. Uh, there was only AM radio in those days. Uh, and this guy had... So this DJ, his name was Joe Adams. And he was a black uh, DJ, and mostly he played doo-wop and rhythm and blues and stuff like that. But it's okay. So we listened to that, you know, on the way to... And occasionally he would play something really a little bit uh, more closer to an outer boundary, shall we say. But, God, we were pulling into the parking lot of um, one of the beaches in Santa Monica. And this divine, heavenly sound came on the radio. And I sat there transfixed. And I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, what, what has happened? And uh, I asked my friend uh, if, if he knew who that was. And he said, oh, that's Stan Getz, man. <laughs> and I thought to myself, and this is way before Bossa Nova. I mean, it's just, you know, when he... So, anyway, I, I thought to myself that this is where I want to be for the rest of my life, forever. I don't want to be anywhere else except right here emotionally and spiritually. This is it. This is exactly where I want to be. And I still remember it with, and still get all goosey about it. (laughs) Hey, everybody, this is the middle of the show. If you can, take a second out and go to the Feral Audio Conversations with Matt Dwyer page. If you can, donate a little bit of money. I don't like asking for money, but uh, Dustin Marshall, who runs Feral, really sacrifices a great deal of his life. You know, maybe just don't. Eat at a taco stand and give us the dollar fifty. Um, we use that money to buy equipment, to travel, to interview people. It's not like we're going and buying an eight ball of coke. If you can't afford to donate money, and I understand that these are tough times, if you're going to buy something and you buy it on Amazon, please use my link. Buy something on Amazon. We get a kickback, and it helps us out a great deal. Um, also, please write a review of the show. If you can, go to uh, iTunes, give some stars, write a positive review. If you take a screenshot of that and then email me at conversationswiththewire at gmail.com, I'll send you some stickers. Uh, I'm going to be getting more merchandise. Um, so please help us out. Also, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at twitter.com. 
and uh, Super Duper Times, Matt Dwyer at Tumblr there. Thank you. Let's get back to this awesome show. Did you, did you go and see a lot of those guys play live? Because wasn't there... That's... Yeah, or the, or the L.A. sort of bebop. Oh, 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 God. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because sure. there was a, like a... What was the... There was a neighborhood, and I'm blanking, where there was all those... South Central. Yeah, there was like a bunch of clubs, was there not? Yeah, on Central Avenue. Yeah, and that's... Because oh, yeah. Charlie Parker came and played there oh, for... Yeah. Did yeah. you get to see a lot of... Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm a... I'm a I'm a bird fan. Yeah, well, I'm a jazz fan in general. <laughs> but, uh, and I just... I will listen to those... <laughs> I will listen to that at home and... Uh, all of it, and I'm just like, oh God, to have to have seen this. You know, this guy that told me about um, Stan Getz, you know, like turned me on to Stan Getz, and then suddenly I'm buying, you know, like a '78 Prestige uh, album or not, records, you know, singles. Stan Getz quartet all the time, you know, like hearing every, as much as I could get. But he and I discovered Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker. <clears throat> and their quartet. And they played at a small club, uh, not in South Central L.A., but in uh, uh, what is now Koreatown, across from the, uh, at, called The Hague, The Hague. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of albums that were recorded at The Hague. Yes, yes. So every weekend, one night a week, because we didn't have any money, we would go to see Chet Baker and uh, Jerry Mulligan and sit there with our... We had to have two drink minimum per set. Uh, for us, it was Coca-Cola. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're 18 years old. <laughs> so we, we sat there primly, you know, like listening to these two junkies. <laughs> <laughs> but it was glorious, absolutely wonderful. It's not as romantic. It's not like romanticized in my brain. It was just as magical because to me, it's like oh, it's ma- oh well, magical. I mean, it was, it was, well, it was real. You know, we we sat there. It wasn't like the world that we lived in. It was it was escape through Coca Cola, <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot better escape than. You know, they're junk. Than, than <laughs> other kinds of coke, yeah, I know. There, there are other heroin-esque. Uh... Yeah. And uh, the, the, the one thing that also, uh, you you quit for a while. You, or would you, I don't know if it was retired or quit in around 2004. I Is that a, a, a bad thing to talk about? I wouldn't want to. No, no, we can do that. Okay. I made a real mistake. It was because I, I, I didn't tell the truth. Um, to myself, I didn't. I was so pissed off. I had I had done a second album for uh, uh, Atlantic Records, which I I thought I really did a really good job. And suddenly, suddenly, everyone at Atlantic Records uh, just just you know they contract was blown to shit. It was gone forever. So I was left with this album, and I could not give it away. No one wanted it, and I, I was so discouraged. And my marriage had fallen apart. It just collapsed. And I had, I had a four-year-old, three, three or four-year-old son, 
and absolutely no, no prospects at all of making a living, let alone just getting by. I mean, I was, I was in a very bad place. And to be excruciatingly honest, I felt terribly sorry for myself, which is a really, really ugly thing for anybody, I think. But I, I certainly did it. So um, I told everyone that I just, I, I give up. And that, that's the end of it. To hell with you all. What a brave asshole I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I was living in Joshua Tree. I had just been there for a rather short time. And, you know, that, that, this is a hard place to live. I mean, it's really isolated. And the food is awful. And, you know, and it's the desert. I mean, rednecks and meth labs. And, I mean, everything. You know, it was bad. It was a bad place to live. But there I was. And then I got a phone call from a friend who said... Uh, who uh, said, uh, I am going to have uh, lunch with David Silverman. Would you like to uh, Would you like to go and come along? I said, oh, God, yes. I, you know, I, this, this is one artist that I, it, I really still to this day admire more than anyone else. I really, really am an out-and-out fan, you know, a real... Sign my, <laughs> can you sign my autograph? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I was that bad. <clears throat> I never pulled that off. But anyway, I did. I had a wonderful lunch with this really, really charming man. A nice guy. A really, really nice guy. And he just charmed the hell out of me. And I was so happy to have finally after years of listening to his music, when I was an expat, when I didn't even live in this country, I would always come across David Silverman, and I think, oh, God, Jesus Christ, that guy really, really knows what he's doing. I mean, he's really good. And I admired him immensely. Anyway, we had this wonderful lunch, and he said, what was I doing? And I said, well, I was trying to get rid of this damned album. <laughs> And he said, would you send it to me? And I said, yes, of course. And one of the pieces on it is called, um, it's a spring quartet, and it's called It's Steeper Near the Roses for David Silverman. And he's, he emailed and called me back and said, it brought a tear to my eye. I mean, that was amazing, Harold. You, you, really, you really got it. And he said, I would like to put out your album on my label. And I said, yeah, yes. <laughs> I would like you too also. <laughs> so that's, that, that brought me back in, you know, from this fake uh, I, I quit attitude completely. It just changed everything immediately. Suddenly I was back among the living and really enjoying what I was doing. Did you think about music at, at all during that period? All, all the time. All the time. But 
uh, I was so depressed. I mean, I, I don't know how substantial any of that was, really. I just felt awful. I felt sorry for myself, and that's a bad place to be. I've, I've, I mean, I've been in that place, too. I know how. We all have. And then any time she has to see my girlfriend sees me without clothing, I feel bad for her and myself. <laughs> uh, is that, though, is that sort of, I mean, it feels like almost every creative person I know has had those moments where it's just, you just become crippled with self-doubt. I mean, I've... Yeah. It's, it's just... Yeah. I, I think people, a lot of people think if you get to a certain level, then it's this easy sort of breezy life. And I think, I think it just doesn't, I think there's always some kind of inner turmoil. I would like to think so, but I don't, I, I don't really know. I don't have any, any models apart from myself and how accurate, how accurate my assessment of myself is, is really an open question because I don't really think about it very I do often enough to really ponder about, you know, how real this is, actually. Or am I just bullshitting again? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we have a great ability to deceive ourselves. Yeah. I mean, God knows I've done it quite a bit. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, we, we do that. And it's it's amazing to me, too, that uh, you were so... I don't I, 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 you look at the people that you've worked with and the things that you've done and that, that you still get excited and admire artists. It's always, that is, I mean, I, yeah, I, I do. I, yes. In, in fact, almost everybody that I have ever worked with, I ad, admire beyond mere telling. I mean, I think they're just the best. <laughs> it really is true. And I am so flattered to even have been, entertained with the idea of, you know, working with them. I had, I remember once I was sitting in the, at, at the bar in Joshua Tree and my, you know, my cell phone. It was the only bar sandwich place in Joshua Tree that was hit. Like people knew, uh, you know, Concrete Blonde was there all the time and stuff like that. So this is this was one one place. This is the only place. Everything else was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a I got a call and it was from Jaw Wobble, who was the bass player for um, Jaw Wobble, um, the bass player for uh, I can't John John Lydon. Uh, oh, the Sex Pistols, you see, or uh, Public one, Image Limited. Yeah. Public Image Limited. And he said that he's putting a band together, an all-star band, and we're going to tour um, England and Italy. And I said, said um, I didn't even ask how much I was going to get. I imagine he would have hung up his phone in London and <laughs> knock on the door, and it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he put a band together, which was so exciting. It was um, Jackie Lee's Eye playing drums from Cannes, um, uh, Bill Laswell playing bass also, 
and uh, I was the piano player, not the keyboardist player. And who else was there? Graham Graham Haynes, um, who played kind of electronic trumpet. What was the kind of music you, that they were? We just went winging. Oh, well, actually, he said. Um, the the first quote rehearsal it wasn't really a rehearsal but it was um, in in London we all got together for the first time and I met everybody for the first time except Wobble who you know was a really good friend for a long time still is and he said um, uh, Carol there's a piece of yours from um, First piece, which is a kind of dreamy little thing, you know, like, and he says, I think we should start with this, and then it'll, and then it'll change, you know, but we'll, we'll just begin, so can you kind of get us in the mood? I said, yeah, sure, so I, you know, I'm sitting there kind of dreaming, and these other guys are, you know, like getting really into it, and it sounds so beautiful, and oh, you know, it's magic, it's just great, and then after about half hour of that, Wobble began with his um, his uh, dub bass, you know, just like so loud, you can't believe it, and it's just thumping away, and it's going on and on, goes on and on forever, and Jackie Leafside is whacking the drums, and it's, you know, like, and we're all taking our turns with our bit, you know, whatever it's going to be. And we did the tour, and, uh, and I always said to myself, uh, the minute that Wobble calls up, I'm, I'm there, always, forever. And, but it didn't last beyond that. It was lasted a long time, you know, like six weeks. And the uh, England was uh, all the way from the south, the, the Brighton Pier, all the way up to uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and many, many little stops in between on the way north. Wonderful, wonderful experience. And then um, Italy all got canceled except for a, vi a villa in Rome which was okay with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll take, okay. I, I, we, can, we can do that, can't we? <laughs> and it was an outdoor concert, and it was packed, absolutely packed with, uh, you know, people who were really into Wobble's dub bass. Oh, it was wonderful, wonderful. So that was that. When you were an expat, where did, where did you live? I lived in London. I lived in London primarily, and I, I bought a place in West London. And I had to live out of the country uh, in order to get a green card. I don't know why, but that's the rules. So I, I moved to Paris, and I was there for four months until I got noticed that uh, my green card came in, and you can come back and see the <laughs> See the, see the place you bought. <laughs> 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 the 
You couldn't see it until you... you I couldn't. I couldn't. That's enter. amazing. I could not enter England until I'm ill. So my girlfriend, uh, um, she spent the weekends with me in Paris. But it's such a... I mean, it's only 100 miles away. So it's a short, like, one-hour trunk flight from Heathrow to, to Charles de Gaulle. And uh, I would meet her there. We would spend the weekend together, and I would take her back to the airport and see the next week. <laughs> it, really, it was really quite a nice life. The only unfortunate part of it was where the, uh, uh, I had to live uh, with the French, of course. <laughs> I, you know, like, I hate to admit that I've never been to France, but I do like their food, wine, and films. <laughs> I like When it comes to food and wine, nothing beats Italy. Nothing. I mean, wow. And my girlfriend was of Italian extraction, and and she lived and she lived in Italy for a long time, and uh, spoke French and Italian. So when I went on the road, or we took off someplace, she was great to be with because. Whatever country we landed in that I wanted to go to, Spain, even, uh, she spoke the language. That's great. Oh, wonderful. I can't speak any. I, I, I oh, struggle I'm through English. English. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I, I, I stumble over syntax in English. Yeah. I, I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and someone just, because when I assumed you lived in France, because yeah. somebody described you, and I'm going to butcher the word. Uh, as a vivant, is it or is that a, a sort of a, a vivant. yes? Yes. I'm see. I embarrassed myself. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to sound. Is that? Uh, I guess it could be a put down, but um, to call you that—that's a put down. It could be. Oh, I thought it, it was uh, it, it, to it, enjoy it, the finer things in life. Yes, that that, that that that's what it means. I don't know how that's a put down. Well, you know, you could be snobby about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> every time I, I've seen you about the town, you're always enjoying a glass of wine or... You're that's so... true. That's true. <laughs> God knows that's true. I must do something about that someday. <laughs> In fact, I have a... You got it. You're... For no money, it was at the winery, and um, wouldn't you know it? I met one really attractive Italian lady who said that she 
she's been in love with me since she was 17 years old. <laughs> My brain thinking, that is a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so romance bloomed itself, and, and I just had a wonderful time. I, I love the country. I, I love I love everything about the, uh, the whole country. I haven't seen... I've never been south of uh, Naples, so I don't. I've never been to Sicily, unfortunately, which I would love to go to someday, and I, I'm sure I will. But um, so, yeah. And I've been to Milan a million times, and to Rome a million times, and to Florence and stuff. Are you currently recording, or were you? Did you just finish recording, or are you still currently? Because I know you're going out of town next month. I am going out of town. I, I am. I am working on a. The Robin and I are working right this second on a second film for Greg Araki, and um, it's on hiatus right now because he's um, decided apparently to uh, edit the to re recut the film. And um, so Robin is doing it from his home in France, and I'm doing it from um, the studio I use, which is right just a mile and a half away from me. In fact, I don't know. So, but you know, that's it. And I am going. I finished a. Uh, I finished an album uh, called Jane One to Eleven. And it's for a friend of mine, Jane Maru, who I, an artist I met in Twenty uh, Nine Palms, which is when I lived in the desert, of course, and which is twenty miles away from Joshua Tree. Anyway, Jane was always a good, reliable friend, and we always had great dinners and great conversation with her. And um, she's a batik artist, and uh, I think just just brilliant. I, I just love her. I love her work. And she uh, makes little eccentric videos also. And uh, I decided that I would ask her if she would uh, want to collaborate with me on on a full album of videos and music? And the answer is yes, because it's done. Now it's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I'm, I'm starting um, the next round of Jane uh, next, next month in, in Missoula, Montana, which is where she has moved from Joshua, from uh, 29 Palms. I can understand that. <laughs> when, where can people see those videos? And, and oh, the videos will be out in November, I think. Um, the The album itself is already out. So, I believe that's. I have that album. We oh, were listening oh, to. Do. We were listening to that this morning, actually. Oh, well, well, that's, 
Um, um, and just to to, <laughs> to to wrap it up, it's and uh, people you have heraldbud.com People can and then that's where they can seek out all your music. Um, and, actually, heraldbud.com is not mine at all. It's, it's not. No, it's it's somebody else. No, but you do have a website. Am I in? Am I insane? No, I do not. I do not. There is a heraldbud.com. And it, oh, I thought I but saw it's it. It's not mine. Okay. It's not mine. The best way to get hold of me is just through Darla Records. Oh, okay. Because I'm in touch with him all the time. And he's he's very, very good about, you know, taking care of things. That, that sort of fan, fan stuff, you mean? Yeah. No, and no. buy your stuff. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. All, right. all of that. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time out to do this. It meant a great deal to me, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you both very much. Thank you you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please tell your friends about it. Tweet about it. Check out all the other shows on Feral Audio. I love you very much. I I have some very interesting guests coming up in the future. Uh, Enjoy. I love you. Power to the people. Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.